to Bite Size Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 12th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Anne Petrie, who was born on this day in 1908. Anne was the youngest of three daughters born in Old Saybrook, Connecticut to Peter and Bertha Lane. Old Saybrook is on the southern shore of Connecticut, pretty much straight across the Long Island Sound from the very tip of Long Island. It's about 21 square miles and has a very Martha's Vineyard kind of feel to it, like lighthouses and these lovely wooden shingled homes on the sand. Today, the population is around 10,000, but when Anne was born there, the population was only about 1,500 people, only 15 of which, including Anne's family, were black. Anne came from a pharmaceutical family. Uh, Her father was the town pharmacist, and her aunt, Anna James, who she was named after, was the first black female pharmacist in the history of Connecticut. Anne would actually go on to also get a PhD in pharmacology, but we're jumping ahead just a tiny bit. So Anne's dad was a pharmacist, and her mom, Bertha, was a bit of an entrepreneur. She owned a business called Beautiful Linens for Beautiful Homes. She was a hairstylist, and she was a licensed chiropodist, and that's like an old-fashioned term for a podiatrist. Even as a child, Anne was aware that where she was growing up in this little New England town on the beach, it was giving her a very different childhood than if she had been born in the inner city in like Harlem or the Bronx. Reflecting back later in her life, she mused about her family that, quote, they were filled with ambitions that they might not have entertained had they lived in a city along with thousands of poor blacks stuck in demeaning jobs. Her family was essentially middle class. Growing up, they didn't really want for anything, but they were definitely not super wealthy. And they were also definitely very isolated uh, in their city because of their race. Like almost every person of color at that time, Anne was impacted by Jim Crow laws. She was told to get off the beach by white people when she was a kid. And she was also the subject of racial discrimination. In in school, teachers refused to allow her in the classroom. And even if they did allow her in the classroom, they would totally isolate her and call her out. Like one time, her class was reading aloud from Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Gold Bug. And her teacher forced Anne to take the only black part in the book, which is a character named Jupiter, who was an illiterate former slave. Thankfully, between young Anne and most of the ugliness of the world, there was a strong wall of family. Her parents were obviously very intelligent, and they were fiercely devoted to shielding her and her sisters as much as possible from racism. She also had the benefit of relatives that visited often, and they shared stories of their international travels, and that really inspired her to think beyond her tiny town. But what impacted her the most was probably her mother's strong entrepreneurial spirit and her namesake aunt's pioneering drive. And these two women made her realize, as she would later share, that it never occurred to them that there were things they couldn't do because they were women. Like a lot of kids, her idea for her future was divided from her parents' idea for her future. Her father wanted her to become a pharmacist and take over the family business, and Anne fancied a career in writing. She was encouraged by her high school English teacher, who actually wrote on an essay of hers, you could become a writer if you wanted to. So Anne found a way to make both things happen for her because she's just that kind of an amazing person. And she went to the University of Connecticut and completed a PhD in pharmacology in 1931, and she was writing short stories in her free time. In 1938, three important things happened. 
First, she officially switched career paths and she took a job as a full-time writer at the Amsterdam News, where she would stay for three years. Second, she married a man named George Petrie. And third, her and George moved to New York. When she left the Amsterdam News in 1941, she started a new writing position at the People's Voice, and she would be there for three years as well. A personal short story of hers at that time appeared in the NAACP's official magazine, The Crisis. Journals kept picking up her stories, even though some of them made her write under a man's name. She usually used uh, Arnold Petrie. That same year, she enrolled in a creative writing course at Columbia, and she stayed there for five years while also working at after-school programs at a public school called, creatively, Public School Number 10 in Harlem. It was here that she got a really stark firsthand glimpse into what exactly it was like to be an impoverished child of color growing up in the inner city. She was obviously, you know, spared that by growing up in a financially stable family in a little town on the beach. So witnessing firsthand the cycle of poverty and neglect that was so entrenched in the day-to-day lives of these children had a profound impact on Anne. She began to become involved with local writers and artists and activists, including some grassroots communist organizations, and this would make her the subject of some gossip, but she never officially joined the Communist Party. So while she's working in this city, in these streets with these people, she absorbs the language and the daily dramas, and she uses this day-to-day fodder as fuel for her writing. All of this would become the genesis of her most well-known novel, The Street. Her daughter, Liz, would later tell the Washington Post that mom's way of dealing with the problem was to write this book, which maybe was something that people who had grown up in Harlem couldn't do. This book has actually been cited by many literary scholars as the first example of literature in which African-American motherhood is the central theme. Let's sidebar for a second and talk about this book, The Street. So The Street comes out in 1946 to wide public acclaim. It won the Houghton Mifflin Literary Fellowship. It sold over a million copies, just a dynamite first novel. It made her the most successful female African-American writer of her day. It's a very sad, but very profound book. I'm going to give you like the two cent synopsis because I don't want to spoil anything for you if you haven't read it, which I really suggest that you do. It centers on Ludie Johnson. She's this beautiful woman of color who leaves her cheating loser husband, taking their eight-year-old son with her. She moves into this little apartment in Harlem and has to navigate poverty and creepy landlords and opportunistic brothel owners and abusive men, the system taking her child. And it reads like a novel, but underneath all of it, Anne paints the reality of life for many women of color raising children in poverty and dealing with these daily systemic attacks of racism and sexism. And it gave a voice to that experience and it opened a lot of eyes and made a lot of people feel seen for the first time. So the book explodes and so does Anne's celebrity status. With celebrity comes the sliding under the microscope of the public, and she was conscious of her family's privacy as well as her own association with avowed communist community activists. So she and her family moved back to Old Saybrook in 1947, the year after The Street came out. This was also partially fueled by the development of a second Red Scare, which was flaring up thanks in no small part to Joseph McCarthy. A Red Scare, for those of you not familiar with the term, is basically this widespread panic that's whipped up like some kind of frenetic meringue that surrounds the concept of an explosion of communist activity. The first one of these took place between 1917 and 1920, just after World War I and the Bolshevik-Russian Revolution. Essentially, America saw the mighty imperial Russia 
slowly collapse like a bad souffle. There's a lot of baking metaphors going on here. And the culprits, or I guess one of the hundred, right, that tend to lead to the fall of any historical dynasty, there usually isn't just one thing, America saw as being solely communism, and America was terrified that she was going to be next. So groups like unions and labor rights organizations and what the government identified as political radicals suddenly became public enemy number one. The nationwide paranoia subsided for a while, but it was starting to flare back up again between 1947 and 1957, when the Cold War and the Iron Curtain and the Korean War and the Rosenberg trial and all that stuff just kind of put everyone on edge. You add McCarthy's communist witch hunt, and suddenly it became extremely dangerous to even wave to a suspected communist on the street. Aware of all this, Anne felt that she would be under less stress and scrutiny back in her small oceanic hometown. She did, however, speak out on the abhorrence of McCarthyism, and she continued to openly support the people whose lives had been destroyed by this, including Paul Robeson, the incredible singer, actor, football player, and civil rights activist. We're going to actually be covering his life on April 9th. So Anne continues to write up until the 1970s. She writes more novels, she writes short stories, and even some kids' books. None of them soar quite as high as the street in terms of sales or even recognition. She devoted a lot of her time to performing at the American Negro Theater and lecturing on English at universities around the country. Before her death, she actually destroyed um, most of her writings and her letters. She was very intent on keeping her inner world private after she passed on, so... There are some gaps in her life that we just don't have a lot of information on because of that. Anne died on April 28, 1997, at the age of 88. Her husband, George, lived until 2000, and their only daughter, Liz, outlived them both. My sources today were Wikipedia, The Black Chronicle, Harvard Magazine, The Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame, The African American Literature Book Club, and FemBio. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to a totally homemade podcast. And if you're feeling social, you can follow Humans in History on Instagram at humans underscore in underscore history. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Anne Petrie. Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of Revolutionary War hero Mary Hayes, a.k.a. Molly Pitcher. See you then.